everyone to the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, a Prairie Proud Wrestling Podcast covering everything from Winnipeg to worldwide. My name is Blair Pacheco, and today's episode, as I had mentioned last week when I was fortunate enough to interview Ravenous Randy Myers, today's episode is a bit of a special episode. I had planned to release this, but obviously things change, so you're getting it this week. Um, I wanted to, uh, it sort of lined up with everything going on. I mean, right now, you know, the Calgary Stampede is about to kick off. It is one of my absolute favorite pay-per-views. And it was Bret Hart's birthday, you know, on July 2nd. So, I mean, what better time than now than to review one of the absolute best pay-per-views in Canadian history, In Your House, Canadian Stampede. So this was back in 1997. We're going to jump into the review right away. But so this was back in 97. And that was when New York, they were hitting, you know, Canadian markets nonstop. You know, you would get the back-to-back raw tapings where it was Calgary and Edmonton. I think they were in Nova Scotia one time where nowadays you wouldn't even imagine them to do a raw out on the East Coast. So back then they were, they hit Canada markets quite a bit in this pay-per-view it is one that I know I think this is one of the few in your houses that I will go back and watch on a semi-regular basis so today's episode is going to be a review of the classic pay-per-view in your house Canadian stampede and we're going to jump into that right away so coming live from the Calgary Saddle Dome, is it the Calgary Saddle Dome? I think it is. The Calgary Saddle Dome was in your house Canadian Stampede. Now, this was back in July 1997. And the show, it actually kicked off with a feud that many of us, I don't think, ever imagined a few years later would be such a prolific main event feud. So, the first match on the card was Triple H versus Cactus Jack. Or, sorry, Triple H versus Mankind. Cactus Jack was down the road. Now, this was actually a rematch of the King of the Ring finals, which happened a month earlier. Now, it really, like I, watching this, I I remember watching it back in the day, and I never would have imagined either of them to progress into the eventual main event feud that did happen because they had some absolute wars. I think it was No Way Out in, I want to say 2000, that they had just an absolute banger of a match. So, I mean, I never thought that it would get to this level from them. But for the time, it was such a such a fantastic, you know, upper mid-card feud, so to say. You know, Triple H was starting to come into his own a little bit more because this was right before him and Sean got together for Degeneration X. So he was starting to come into his own. Mankind was developing a bit more of a, a character, of a personality, so to say. So, I mean, this this match was basically, to me, it was just like a continuation of their King of the Ring, you know. So they get in there, and it, you really see Mankind's willingness to put his body on the line, especially in this match, because at one point, they're battling on the outside, and China hip-tosses him. It's a, a very 
sloppy-esque hip toss. Hip tosses him right into the steel steps, and you just see his leg crush against the side of it. And you feel that pain. So mankind's willingness, as we come to see, you know, even a year later at Hell in a Cell where he went flying off the top of the cage is really a sight to behold. You know, he something him always putting his body on the line. And I know nowadays, I'm not sure how Mick walks or how his body's feeling, but I don't think anyone realized the toll that it would take on his body. So now there is one point in this match where Triple H had Mankind in the figure four leg lock right near the ropes and whenever a heel uses the ropes for the advantage I think it is just a such a fantastic spot you know grabbing the ropes when the ref's not looking ref looks he lets go you know just to build the heat and even with this because this you know it got the crowd into it a little bit more and you've seen other wrestlers do it you know with the abdominal stretch or whatever but I will always love when they do it with the figure four grab the ropes Ref looks a few times, misses it. Eventually, the ref catches on and, you know, gives the big over-exaggerated kick to get the hands off there like Earl Hebner always used to do. So, that happened, and I will always mark out for that. Mankind, during the match, he hit a pile driver, and it's it's funny looking at it now because very you don't see too many pile drivers nowadays. You will see them more so in AEW, but in WWF, it almost seems like, or WWE, it seems like that they've just, you know, written them off completely. So the seeing one back then, the uh, the pull of the tights up pile driver that uh, Mankind used to do is, you know, it was very reminiscent, like, you know, reminiscent of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was nice to see, you know, something that you grew up on seeing and then it's almost like a flashback and you're like, Oh shit, yeah, I forgot about that. So, Mankind hit the, you know, a rare pile driver. They were brawling all around ringside. They, you know, made their way out into the crowd at one point. And this match, it ended in a double DQ. And I think this is one of the few times, the way they did this, one of the few times where a double DQ, it fit in the storyline so well. Just with, you know, after King of the Ring, you know, them brawling nonstop, you know, on TV, the feud building up. So this was a wonderful way to continue that storyline. You didn't need Mankind to eat another pin, and Triple H didn't need to be beaten yet. So it fit the storyline perfectly, and when you're watching it, you, you know, you're tuned in, you see the double countout, and you're, it's, I think it's one of the few times a double countout, you're watching, and it's just, yeah, that makes sense. So... Post-match, you know, they continue brawling. They're going into the crowd. Uh, Hunter gets dumped in the penalty box. The crowd goes nuts for that. You know, they're big hockey fans out there in Calgary. You know, go Flames. Not really, but go Flames. So gets dumped in the box, and they just continue brawling. I think they just make their way back to, uh, you know, backstage, and uh, that was it for that one. The second match on the card, I think there was only four matches on the main pay-per-view, if I'm not mistaken. So four matches on the main pay-per-view. There was one pre-show match between the Godwins versus the new Blackjacks, which I'm sure was just an absolute banger, but it wasn't on the WWE Network 
version of the pay-per-view. So this is just strictly main card. The second match was actually, you know, part of WWF's foray into the lightweight division. So we had Takamichi Noko versus the Great Suzuki. I've heard Great Suzuki. I've heard Great Sasuke. I'm going to go with Suzuki. But if I'm absolutely wrong, then someone please correct me on this. But So Suzuki, everyone knows what incredible talent he is. And I was actually researching before this, just reading up a little bit about the lightweight division. And this could be strictly bullshit, but I will relay this to you because it kind of makes sense storyline when you actually look into it a little bit more. Um, they had they were going to position Suzuki as Suzuki as the uh, sort of the crown jewel of the lightweight division. That was his plan. You know, he had this match. They had a rematch the next night on Raw, which he won. Uh, so the plan was for him. He was going to be their first lightweight champion. I guess he had done an interview in Japan and said that, you know, his plan was he was going to win the title and go back to Japan with it and leave it there. And New York was none too happy about that. And that sort of ended Suzuki, great Suzuki's, you know, WWF foray. And instead of signing him, they signed Takamichi Noko instead. So, I mean, I don't know the truth to this, but I figured I'd relay it on to you since it pertains to this. So, Suzuki's an incredible talent. We all know it. We've seen his matches. He had that almost, you know, uh, you know, the match with, oh, I want to say it was with Janela at a, a GCW show not too long ago. I'm going to look it up and double check just to make sure. So, so I was correct. They had, uh, it was Janela versus Suzuki, Great Suzuki, and that was at the uh, Spring Break show back in 2018, uh, which I only watched part of the card. I only remember watching Riddle versus James Ellsworth at the time. So, you know, Suzuki had his sort of return, and I think he's still wrestling, if I'm not mistaken. So, we know what a talent he is. During the match, it's, you know, about to kick off, they show you know mankind and triple h are still battling into the crowd some more they're continuing on their brawl from the outside now you go back and watch this match and it is incredibly before its time like i don't think anybody knew what we were watching at the time and i mean the crowd in calgary had no idea i don't think anybody there knew what was going on you know because Nowadays, if a match gets announced, say AEW, like AEW, they just had their uh, women's title eliminator a few months ago. So they announced the lineup, and er almost everyone's familiar with the American side, but the Japanese wrestler side, if there was someone you weren't familiar with, I mean, now you don't know someone, and, you know, there'll be someone will post a thread on Twitter, be like, oh, uh, you know, Emi Sakura, here's a list of all of her matches you should check out you know so nowadays it's matches are so readily readily available that if you don't know someone you can easily become familiar with them but back then it was there was none of that so these two are going into the ring the calgary fans had no idea what to expect and i mean even you you're listening to the announcing and vince 
on commentary contributed so very little to this match besides the odd what a maneuver or you know that sort of trope that was heavily prevalent throughout all of 97 WWF TV and I mean as I mentioned the crowd was unfamiliar with these two unless they were huge CMLL fans or watched Michinoko Pro and got tapes traded with them they were probably out to lunch unless they did watch ECW Barely Legal 97 where Sasuke and Michinoko were involved and I think it was a six-man tag on that card so um at one point in this match, Suzuki caught him with a huge jumping spin kick. And it was almost like at that point, the crowd was like, holy fuck. And they got, you know, you could hear them like gasp and get into the match at that point. So um, they, uh, he eventually got him locked into a half Boston Crab, which I'm sure it would have made Lance Storm proud. And it's almost kind of, funny that you see something like that the way he retched back on uh taka's leg it was uh it was kind of cool you know so um at, at one point you know sasuke gets taka back into the corner and is just destroying him with kicks taka drops down and he he's crouched or sitting into the corner and sasuke just levels him with another huge spin kick you know sasuke just loved his spin kicks and it was almost like, you know, with the crowd, you know, they were they would die down with sort of lulls in the lulls in the offense, you know. So the spin kicks just seemed to like ignite them one after another. So hits him with the the spin kick. Just flipping my page of notes here. I've got pages of them. So um, Taka ends up hitting an, a dragon screw leg whip and. You've heard me talk about that move before. I absolutely love the dragon screw leg whip. It looks so vicious every single time. And I know as someone with, you know, I've had knee surgery before, like I cringe every time I see it. So, I mean, you know, it's done safely and, you know, they're, they're professionals, but it's a move that looks vicious, but still you're watching, you're like, holy fuck. So, uh, Suzuki's on the outside. Michinoko hits a huge springboard plancha off the top rope. If if you've seen a Taka match in WWF or elsewhere, you know the move I'm talking about. Pardon me. And it always looks fantastic. So, and that was no difference here. Hits a huge plancha on the outside. Gets him back in the ring. Michinoko driver for two. At one point, Taka goes up to the top rope and he goes for a cross body but Suzuki catches him with a drop kick looked fantastic so uh eventually Suzuki he catches him with the uh, thunder firebomb hits a tiger suplex gets the one two three and this is sort of this match it's sort of the uh the start of the lightweight division you know you go back and look and I mean in WCW they had already you know they had their Rey Mysterios their you know, Malenko's, Guerrero's, all that. So they were already progressing into the cruiserweight, lightweight division. And, I mean, this was WWF's attempt. And researching this, I went back, you know, to look at the, you know, the inaugural tournament and just how they progressed. And I was looking, and you see the brackets. And, okay, 
you know, Aguila was in there who eventually went on to be Poppy Chulo. He faced off with Super Loco. Looking at Super Loco was actually super crazy. I went back and watched that match, and it is probably one of the worst matches I have seen. Just it was sloppy and all over the place. And then, you know, you see that and see the wrestler that Super Crazy ended up becoming, and it was just like, you know, night and day difference. But I, it totally slipped my mind that he had ever had a cup of coffee in WWF before the Mexicools. So, you know, he had Super Crazy and Aguila. Uh, Brian Christopher was in there. Scott Taylor ended up becoming too cool together. Takamichi Noko was in there. Flash Flanagan. Devin Storm. And I was looking at the the original bracket, and it actually had Jerry Lynn in there. So it would have been interesting to see how they would have used Lynn in that situation instead of, I think it was Scott Taylor that ended up replacing him. So, but like anything, I mean, WWF has never really given the lighter weight guys much of a chance to, uh, you know, they've never really showcased them to the level that their talent shows that they should. Um, even, you know, with the cruiserweight classic that happened years later, you know, it, it, I think everyone was super hyped up for that. And then it's the way it progressed. It was just like, uh, okay, it's the same, same old, same old. I mean, it's, it is what it is. So, you can't, you know what you're going to get with them. And I mean, it just, it's another thing with New York. So needless to say, if you have, the match is only 10 minutes long. So if you've got time, go to your way and give it a watch. And, you know, let me know what you think. I personally, I really enjoyed it. And even I went back and checked out the old uh, Wrestling Observer just to see the ratings for this card. And I mean, the match got a, a decent rating. So, I mean... Yeah, it is what it is. Go ahead, check it out. It's it's good. So, next up was e was a WWF championship match between Vader and the WWF champion Undertaker. So, they showed a preview package before, um, and leading up to this match, it was actually supposed to be Ahmed Johnson who got the he, he was supposed to be the challenger. Back in 1996 and 1997, I had an absolutely ridiculous amount of love for Ahmed Johnson. I thought he was the best wrestler in the world. I thought he was fantastic. I was such a huge fan. Him decked out with his 14 knee pads up and down his legs, you know, hitting the Pearl River plunge. I was, I was, you know, the biggest fan. And, you know, back in 96, he had, you know, a, a bit of a cup of coffee in the main event because him and Sean had become, you know, storyline friends. I think they headlined the In Your House International Incident. It was um, Sean, Ahmed, who was, Sean was world champ. Ahmed was intercontinental. And then it ended up being Sid Vicious, who was their partner, facing off against Cam Cornette. And I think that one was out in Vancouver, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, back then I was hyped up on Ahmed. 97, I was still hyped up. Even though he was a heel, I was jacked up. I wanted him to get that title opportunity. He was, you know, part of the nation. He had joined up with them. Farouk had the title shot, I think, the month before. Then it was Ahmed's turn. Ahmed ended up getting hurt. He was out of the match. Devastating because, you know what? I would have rather seen Ahmed face off against Taker than Vader. And it's no knock on Vader. It's just... WWF 
they never used Vader to the level that he deserved to be. When you see his matches in WCW, how he was presented, or even you know his uh, how he was presented overseas, he was an absolute monster. He was someone who should have been feared, and they never really. I don't want to say if it was grasped it or if it was, you know, because he wasn't a homegrown product that they weren't going to give him that same level of exposure. So Vader never reached that same level. And it, you could notice it, especially after I think it was 96 SummerSlam where him and Sean were the main event. And it was, he, you know, ended up losing that. I think it went like, you know, disqualification count out eventually got pinned if I'm not mistaken because he wanted to win the title so he ended up losing and it was just just another thing Vader never reached that level that he should have and you watch this match and it was more of the same you almost knew what to expect with it I don't think anybody in that arena thought that Vader had a, a chance of beating Undertaker so I mean watching on TV back then I'm not a smart fan, you know, like I was on the message boards. I had my website, I, me and the, the D boys, we, we, we did up. And I mean, watching that, you knew Vader wasn't going to win, but you know, they still went out there and did it. So the crowd was ridiculously hot for Undertaker and it's not surprising. I mean, Taker, he is a fan favorite. Me, not a fan unless it's, the all-american badass undertaker that's my go-to but most people they love you know the phenom the dead man and that's cool you know go for it this match it follows your standard undertaker match you know you're getting all of his regular moves you're getting the heat spots it's nothing that stood out above and beyond it's just an undertaker match the uh there was one point where uh, Undertaker when he got Vader up for a tombstone, and the uh, I guess with the momentum and Vader's weight, because Vader's a big guy, he's agile, but he's still a massive dude. The Undertaker tried to get him up, and they were doing the reversal spot and flipped right over. At least they worked it into a pin, so it wasn't as noticeable of, as a botch. Um, I will say because I was mentioning how big of a guy vader is um i mean it is thick boy summer so have at her My, i myself am a thick boy so there we go but back at a house show i think this was in 90 must have been 97 or 98 i remember we went to the old winnipeg arena and we at the house shows you know you always want to get on the floor so you could run up get high fives and stuff and i remember we got up to the railing and Vader had stopped in front of us and he's about to walk up the steps and it was just a massive back. And, we're, you know, we're patting him on the back like, yeah, fuck, get him, get him. And I, just, I remember just how huge he was, you know, just a solid, solid dude. So, so Vader bomb, uh, or Vader's going up for the Vader bomb. He's delaying, you know, Taker ends up getting up while Vader's still bouncing on the ropes hits a low blow, choke slams him off the uh, off the second rope. One thing I liked about this was the announcing. They they had even said, you know, like the refs, you know, letting them go. They're, he's they're giving him the opportunity because the ref is standing there watching, and you would be like, okay, well that's a disqualification. So they did add that into there at least by saying it. So 
Um, gets the choke slam, gets a two count. Taker eventually does get him up for a tombstone, gets the win, retains the championship. He goes on to face, you know, Brett at SummerSlam, uh, SummerSlam Heart and Soul a month later. So that's where we're at with that. So next up, we get a video package just previewing the uh, 10-man tag that's still to come. Before that, we get Canada's own Farmer's Daughter singing the Canadian National Anthem. I'm sure that the Calgary faithful were jacked up for that. I mean, I was watching it on on my iPhone. So they're out there to sing the anthem. The, the you know, non-Canadian talent come out first. So you had, in the match, it was Goldust, Ken Shamrock, Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal, and the one and only Stone Cold Steve Austin facing off against the Hart Foundation. Jim Neidhart, British Bulldog, Brian Pillman, Owen Hart, and the one and only Brett the Hitman Hart. So, one thing that I really, really liked about this was the Hearts, they all came out to their own individual theme music. And uh, I don't think I'd ever heard Brian Pillman's theme before. Well, if, I'm sure I did, but I didn't remember it. And it's it's a fucking banger of a theme. It's really good. I liked it. And even after Pillman got introduced, the crowd pop for him was unbelievable. I mean, I know that he, you know, he had his history in Stampede. He teamed with uh, Bruce Hart, who we'll talk about a little later on, you know, Bad Company. You know, he has history with the Stampeder. So he does have that Calgary roots, but it still it still really said, says something with the reaction that he got. Um, so the pop for him is huge. Owen Hart's theme to this day is still an absolute banger. The King of Hearts, the or yeah, the King of Hearts or the Rocket, the theme, whatever you want to call it, still absolutely whips. I love it. That... Absolutely great. So, I think, you know, hold on. Before I get into the match, uh, I will mention that the uh, Hart family was at ringside. So you had, you know, Stu was there, Helen, Bruce Hart still rocking the uh, the Bad Company. Uh, gear was there with the leather jacket, the shades on. At the time, I don't think we, the fans, knew what kind of, like, we knew what we were watching with Austin and Hart and their feud, but you look back at it today and it was such an incredible feud from where they started off with that, you know, Survivor Series 96 to when Brett ended up leaving the company. I mean, it was such a fantastic feud. You had so many incredible matches, so many incredible moments between the two. And even... With this match, you know, they start off, they're facing off five versus five, and all of them are jaw jacking. And you see Austin and Hart, they just got their eyes locked. We didn't know what we had at the time, but we were witnessing, you know, in my mind, one of the greatest feuds in wrestling between Bret Hart and Steve Austin. So, you know, at one point during the match, Austin, uh, he had Bret locked up in the Million Dollar Dream. And then... Uh, Brett pushes up off the corner to try to reverse it. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I know I've seen 
I swear I've seen that before with the two, and I want to say it was that Survivor Series, but that one might have been a different uh, sort of reversal. I can't recall off the top of my head. So I did like that little ode. Um, Shamrock, when he tagged in, he had some incredible pin attempts for the time. I mean, nowadays you'll see them much more often, but back then I don't think we were, you know, you would ever see one of the one or two of the ones that he did. So rewatching it now it was kind of nice to see you know like okay yeah you know that's innovative it's different you like that you know so you go back and look at shamrock actually i should continue with this because he was still fairly new in the wwf ring he only had a handful of tv matches before this point he had been on the house show circuit so he was getting the reps and like that but i want to say he only had about six or seven matches singles matches before this one if i'm not mistaken so it was only a few pillman he definitely had his moments you know in the ring so i think everyone listening is familiar with you know the brian pillman story you know they had mentioned you know they talked very much on dark side about you know his ankle problems uh, the issues that he had, and you, you, it was very. As soon as you they mention it, it's much more noticeable when you're watching him. You know, his movements aren't as fluid in the ring, and even there was a, a few points. I mean, one where he hit a backbreaker on Shamrock, and you could you could see the grimace on his face, so you could tell that things weren't right with Pillman. But nonetheless, the crowd absolutely loved him they loved everything he did in the ring he was incredibly over and i think that often gets forgotten that just how much you know the canadian fans the calgary fans were really into him at one point in the match between well between pillman and shamrock are going at it pillman actually you know he had shamrock mounted and shamrock was you know reeling he was in you know selling his whatever had Pillman had done right before and Pillman grabbed Shamrock's hand and started tapping it and be like, he's tapping out, he's tapping out. And you rewatch that and it's like, that's actually pretty fucking funny. So it's just one of those little things storyline wise, which, you know, you kind of notice and, you know, makes you chuckle. Goldust and Bret Hart at one point, they're facing off in the ring. And those two, like even when they're facing off, you know, it seems like, such a good matchup you know like they're both you know second generation they're both incredibly talented in the ring I mean everybody knows what Brett has done and Goldust has you know reinvented himself he's come back from his you know the issues that he's had and stuff and really I mean he's one of the trainers down in AEW so you know that he's incredibly talented in the ring so you watch these two face off and go at it and you almost really would have liked a longer feud between the two. You know, they're both talented. They both have good in-ring psychology, a good wrestling pedigree. So just one of those things. It's a shame that we never really got a lengthier feud between them because I think that really would have, the in-ring work would have been there. The storyline could have been there. It's just one of those things. So uh, Owen Hart hits a missile dropkick. One of the absolute best in the business I would say, you know, 
very few people will come close to performing that move as good as Owen. The only one that I adamantly will argue is better is Okada's because Okada's missile dropkick is absolutely beautiful. So they Austin, you know, he's working over Owen's leg with the chair. He's selling it. He starts brawling with Bruce Hart at ringside, you know, getting his shots in at Bruce. After the beatdown Austin laid on Owen, Owen gets walked to the back to get medical attention. So keep that in mind. So Brett, he's getting revenge on Austin for that a few minutes later. Locks on the uh, figure four around the ring post, which is fucking fantastic. You know, back then it was one of those things that just seemed so vicious, you know. So he locks that on. Austin's hurt. He has to get walked to the back. So it's going four on four. Everyone in this match, they're getting a chance to shine. They're showing off their power moves. The crowd is incredibly invested in it. They were absolutely hot for it. For the, like, we all go back to Money in the Bank, the CM Punk John Cena one for a crowd that was on fire. And I mean, for its time, this 97 crowd, you know, watching this in your house, Canadian Stampede, they were a hot fucking crowd. They were right into it. They were all about it. So you really like to see that. So Austin makes his way back. He's the first one back. Owen, he comes back shortly after to save Brett from Austin's attack. Austin, he, you know, he's a wild man. We all know the what he brings to the table. He's a shit-eating wild man. He does, he does whatever he wants. DTA, don't trust anybody. He's going to fuck you up. He's going to dish out stunners, beat your ass, stomp a mud hole, walk you dry, all that stuff. So Austin goes after Stu Hart. Then he goes after Bruce Hart. He's going after more of the Hart family. There's a giant melee outside. Bruce is getting his chance to shine, and they're throwing bombs. So giant melee outside. Austin gets back in the ring. Owen rolls him up, gets the one, two, three, gets the win. The Hart Foundation... They are victorious in the 10-man tag. It was absolutely lovely to see Owen get the pin, get the chance to shine. The Owen Hart story is absolutely tragic. And, I mean, it's you could do a, an entire episode just on Owen and what he means to the business. But getting to see him get the roll-up win in front of his hometown, in front of his friends and family... It was fantastic. It was lovely to see. And it it was really such a great moment. So afterwards, there's a huge brawl inside of the ring. You know, everyone's involved. All the Hart family, they're making their way into the ring. Bruce is just dropping elbows on Animal. I'm surprised we didn't get a Legion of Doom versus Bad Company feud out of this. Um, a Hart Foundation is celebrating. Austin's, you know, making his way to the back. All of a sudden, he runs back in with a chair shot, delivering them to the Jim the Anvil Neidhart. The Hart family just absolutely beats down Austin, just shit kicks him. The refs, the security, they all run in there, put Austin in handcuffs. They're walking him to the back. Austin, still the wild man. He's bending over, making sure everyone can see his hands, flipping off the crowd great you know like it was always you know incredibly entertaining whenever austin had to deal with any sort of like authoritative presence like the police or whatever you know because he didn't care he didn't give a fuck so the hearts are back to celebrating everyone's helping Stu in there you see owen 
he's helping Helen up from her seat. And it, I think it just speaks to the kind of person that Owen was, you know? So they're all celebrating in the ring. And I swear to God, if you go back and watch this, I swear Teddy Hart is in the ring with them. Um, I know I had tweeted out a video of a Teddy Hart promo onto the main Twitter account. And I had rewatched this like, not too long afterwards and it was just like teddy hart is like all over the place all of a sudden so i swear he's in the crowd celebrating with them so in my mind this was you know this is one of my absolutely favorite pay-per-views i i've watched it numerous times i think it's one of the few that i'll like i said i'll go back and watch on a somewhat regular basis um i think it's easy to put on a pay-per-view you know watch a match maybe get bored of it but this one i mean it helps that it's only four matches long i think it clocks in at about an hour and a half which or hour 40 minutes which is you know a perfect time you know we i've mentioned on the show before the two hour takeovers those were that's what i want in a wrestling product it's tough doing three and a half hours of new york television or even when AEW does their pay-per-views and it's like okay here's a four-hour wrestling event so this one being an hour and 40 minutes was perfect you it would almost be nice if they you know whatever companies whether it's you know wwf or wwe or AEW, if they did more you know they all have their pay-per-views their events but AEW is more known for doing their sort of theme events and there's going to be more of them after the switch to TBS and all that. But, you know, New York could really get away with having some more, you know, just two-hour specials. Um, it se- almost seemed like that was the way that it was going to go when they kind of brought back the uh, – they did the Starcade event not too long ago, a couple of years ago. And I think there was another one that was based out of Nashville, if I'm not mistaken, but – do more of those two-hour events. Get the uh, enough just to, you know, get the people talking. Put on a couple, you know, four or five matches, and there's your card. You know, perfect length, just like a, you know, just like the takeover which we talked about, and then you're set. So, needless to say, I had a lot of fun rewatching this, reviewing it. Um, we all know how Brett's tenure in WWF turned out after this because it's few months later was the Montreal screw job but with you know Calgary Stampede being you know early July I think it's still going on I'm that was the plan right the Calgary Stampede was going to go on this year uh so with that happening you know Brett's birthday not too long ago I thought you know what we're going to review in your house Canadian Stampede so I really hope that you enjoyed me ramble on about 1997 wwf for uh 40 minutes i had a blast doing it so this is the first really review of an older show that i've done and i mean if people like it i will definitely do more of them because i think that there's a plethora of good ones that you could sit down and rewatch and just talk about because you know back then late 90s everyone was into wrestling it seemed you know or getting into wrestling so almost everyone is familiar with it and i thought you know it would just be nice to look back at 
and see what kind of, you know, the fun that was had back then. So thank you very much for listening. Like I said, I had a great time talking about it. Um, if you're listening for the first time, check out uh, check out the Twitter's account at GrainmakerPod. If you have questions, comments, concerns, hit me up on email, GrainmakerPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, also up on Apple Podcasts, up on Spotify Podcasts. You know, if you don't have either, we're up on Podbean. And if I'm, if you don't have either of those two and there's a different podcast service, let me know and I will make sure the podcast gets up on there. So, like I said, hit me up. I love talking about wrestling, love interacting with everyone. It is one of my favorite things. Uh, excited to get things back to normal and go see live shows again, which every day it seems like we're closer to it. So, fingers crossed. Thank you very much for checking it out. Have a good one.